the gospel, and I invite you to please rise. Our gospel reading tonight comes from Luke 24, beginning at verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the Gospel of our Lord. You may be seated. Our New Testament reading tonight comes to us from the book of Acts, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. And our epistle reading tonight comes from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the first chapter, beginning at verse 15. He writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, which are the glorious riches of, which, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of our Lord. At this time, we will continue by receiving the offering. Or do we go straight into the sermon? 
Let's go straight into the sermon. All right. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today is going to be taken from the reading we heard in the book of Acts. We begin with the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here today rejoicing that we live under the gracious reign of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Redeemer. But Lord, we do come to you tonight from a world that is full of suffering and hurt. And so we pray uh, that as we hear your word today, we would be reminded of your promises, assured in our hope, and bold in the work that we do for the sake of your name and the glory of your, uh, of your people. Now Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. Why do you stand there looking up into heaven? That's what the angels asked the disciples when Christ was ascended into heaven. When the cloud came and took him up, the angels want to know, why are you looking up into heaven? And let's be honest, that's a strange question. The disciples, are, excuse me, the disciples, the angels, though, they have a tendency to do this, to ask strange questions. I'm actually reminded tonight uh, of the, the account of Christ's resurrection and the empty tomb, the story of Easter morning. Remember when the ladies show up at the tomb and they go there expecting to embalm the body of Jesus and they go into the open tomb and what do they find but angels? And again, the angels ask this strange question. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? That's a weird question to ask from a tomb, Right? You go into a tomb, you want to ask the angels, why do I look for the living among the dead? Why do you talk about living people in a grave? You're the ones kind of out of place here. doesn't make a lot of sense. But you know why I think the angels do it? I think they enjoy it. I think, I think they enjoy these strange questions because they know what's coming next. They know that following these questions, they're going to deliver a beautiful promise. They're going to preach a great sermon. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He's not here. He is risen, just as he told you. Go to Galilee and you will see him. So we have the same sort of thing happening tonight. The angels asking this bizarre question, why do you stand here looking up into heaven? Now you have to know the context of where they ask this question. Jesus has been with his disciples now after the resurrection for about 40 days. For, not for about, for actually for 40 days. And he's been teaching them everything they know, need to know about the reign of God. And uh, the disciples do, as they so often do, demonstrate that they don't understand exactly what he's saying. So then they ask him at this moment, Jesus, are you about to establish the kingdom of Israel now? In other words, are you about to develop this sort of utopian Jewish state here in Israel? And this is how Jesus responds. Look, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as he was saying this to them, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Okay, let's imagine for a moment that you were there. All right? you, were, you were in the presence of Jesus when the cloud came and enveloped him and took him away. What would you be doing when the cloud took him? You know what you'd be doing? This is what you'd be doing. What? What just happened? Where did he go? 
Jesus was just here now. This, what, what is this cloud? What is taking him? What is going on in this moment? And then as you're confused and baffled and, and perhaps frustrated and, and kind of frightened, an angel comes up, this snarky angel with a smile on his face and a gleam in his eye and says, hey, what are you looking at? Why are you looking up into heaven? Now, it's kind of a funny question, but I've got to be honest with you. If I was there in that moment, I don't know if I would have had a very funny answer for the angel. In fact, after this past week here in our country, and really after the past number of weeks here in our country, I don't know if I would have very many funny things to say at all to the angel. Why do I stand here looking into heaven? Because it looks like Jesus is gone. And let's be honest, there is not a more terrifying sentence than that. It looks like Jesus is gone. And I want to know where he's going, and I want to know what he's up to right now, because frankly, it doesn't really look like he's around. I mean, in my own personal life this past week, in the life of our church this past week, I believe in a Jesus, right, who claims to have conquered the grave. And yet, what did I do this past week but go and sit with my dear friend Phyllis Wilde as we mourn the death of Eric? Jesus claims to have risen from the dead and he's claimed to conquer the grave for us and yet I'm planning another funeral. It doesn't really look like Jesus is around. I believe in a Jesus who claims that he is going to unite all people together as one from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. I believe that this Jesus is ruling over the world and he's uniting us together and yet I hear stories about people who cannot go grocery shopping without being murdered for the color of their skin and it doesn't look like Jesus is around. And I believe in a Jesus who claims to call the little children to himself, who says, let the little children come to me. And yet we have little children in our country who cannot go to school without the fear of an AR-15. And it doesn't look like Jesus is around. So why am I staring into heaven, angels? Because it doesn't look like Jesus is here. And I wonder where he is. And I wonder what's going on. with sin and death and the devil and and raging all around us, I think we find ourselves angry and frustrated and lost and confused and looking to heaven for answers. And sometimes this, this search is just completely pointless. I mean, sometimes we demand answers from heaven because we think that somehow if God were to explain why these things happened, it would make it any easier for us. Here's the reality, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be any better at all. But we want to know. And we demand God to do something, to say something about this. And and such prayers and frustrations and questions, actually for us, it can almost begin to sound blasphemous. But every time we have something like the shooting we saw this past week, I, I begin to find myself identifying more and more with what we read even in the Psalms and the prayers that are prayed there to God. I mean, you look at God, you say, where are you? What are you doing? The psalmist takes it a step further. The psalmist confronts him and he says, hey God, wake up. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself and do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. And redeem us 
for the sake of your steadfast love. That's Psalm 44. Wake up. Have you forgotten your promises? Now, that's a prayer I identify with. That's a prayer that I find bubbling up in my own heart. And I'm sure many of us, when we see tragedies or experience tragedies, we, we have this same response and same reaction. And we're worried about saying such things to God. But you have to ask yourself the question, as, as much as it sounds like we're bordering now on blasphemy, who can pray that kind of a prayer? Who can actually confront God in that sort of a way? Well, I'll tell you who can do it. It's someone who has faith. Someone who actually believes God when he makes promises. Who trusts that God is a good and loving God. Who doesn't believe that he's off in the clouds somewhere, distant from everything, but actually wants to hold him to his word. And so turns to God in lament crying out for mercy because we believe that He is a God who listens and who will answer. The person who can pray this prayer is the person who knows a God who is not aloof to our suffering, is not aloof to the person who cries out from the pit, but Himself has entered into that pit in a deeper and darker way than any of us could ever possibly conceive. When that God put on our flesh and went to a cross where he was beaten and bloodied, mocked and murdered, suffering both the wrath of God and the scorn of man. We can pray that prayer because we know a God who not only suffered and died in the most shameful and horrifying way, but then broke free from the shackles of death and walked out of the grave on Easter morning, leaving death behind and allowing His light to overcome the darkness. And now we believe that this God who has suffered for us, who has risen for us, is now ruling and reigning over us in mercy and grace and love. And now breathes forth a word of hope and healing into our ears and our hearts that seem to be suffocating in this world of fear and death and violence. See, what we celebrate on the day of ascension is not somehow Jesus ascending up into the clouds and leaving us behind. But rather, we have a Jesus who has made a promise to us that He is coming again and that He is going to make all things right. I mentioned earlier uh, uh, that uh, the angels, they like to ask these strange questions because they enjoy the sermon they get to preach afterwards. And I think that's true on the ascension as much as it is true at the resurrection. So men of Galilee, they ask, why do you stand here looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The sermon means that we do not lose because Jesus is coming again. He will not be gone in this way or for, absent from our sight forever. He will come again and He will execute justice and vengeance, the Scriptures even say, upon those who have wrecked His world and ravaged His church, who have harmed His little ones. And He will make all things right and restore and save all of those who have suffered longing in hope for His return. And when He comes again, our tears then will be turned to laughter. 
and we will be united as one in praise towards our God. And children will be reunited with their parents. And we will live in the joyful light of Christ's beaming face. And so we do not lose hope. For what the angels tell us today is true. He is coming again. And He will make all things right. But now the question for us today is what to do in the meantime. How are we to proceed? Do we just kind of sit here and suffer and allow uh, evil and sin and, and, and murder to just sort of fester and grow? Well, no. And in fact, I would suggest to you today that the question that the angels ask the disciples as they stand there staring into heaven not only sort of points out to them that there's a promise they have to hold on to, but I think the question almost wakes the disciples up and reminds them of something that Jesus had just spoken to them. Right? Jesus, the disciples are looking into heaven, and the disciples, excuse me, the angels do something with their sermon that every good sermon does. They point the disciples back to Jesus and his words. In other words, you could think of the question kind of like this Why do you stand here looking up into heaven? Didn't Jesus just give you something to do? Why are you sitting around? You've got work to do. Listen again to what Jesus said. You will receive the power, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So why are you sitting here staring off into heaven wondering what's going on when Christ has given you a mission? Why do you stand here staring off into heaven when we're for the disciples, he's about, they're about to receive the Holy Spirit, but for you and I today? Why do we sit here just staring off into heaven when Christ has given us a mission? He's given us his Holy Spirit so that we might go and do something. When you were baptized, he gave you the Holy Spirit. And in that Holy Spirit, he gave you this promise that all of your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, drowned, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and you are forgiven. And he promised you that he has a place prepared for you in eternal life, that you have eternal life, yours as a free gift. And he's not taken that away. But now as we await the realization of that resurrection and that eternal life, Christ has given you his Holy Spirit so that you would testify to him, that you would witness to Jesus, both in your words and in your deeds. We as the church have a mission in this broken and dark and sinful world to witness to Jesus in word and deed. And this is very important for us to remember. Because right now, as I see what's going on in the world, I think we as Christians have this terrible temptation to do two things. One, when we see such devastations take place like we did this past week with the shooting, one of the things we tend to do uh, is we tend to try and defend God or excuse God or let God off the hook or try and take the blame off of God or something like this. And we end up speaking where God has not spoken. We speak out of turn for, <coughs> excuse me, for God. The second thing we do is this. We let God off the hook and we start to point the finger. And we start to blame everyone else. We start to sound just like the rest of the world. Because what does the rest of the world like to do when we see tragedies take place? Who do we blame? I'll tell you who we blame. We blame the government. No, we blame the conservatives. We blame the liberals. We blame the atheists. We blame the evangelicals. We blame anybody who isn't us for their contribution to what has gone on in the world because we figure if we can just overcome that group and take power away from them and hopefully even eliminate them, then all of these problems will simply go away. 
And my fear is that I see the church begin to take part in this sort of hateful rhetoric. And that's not what we're called to do. What's the message Christ has sent us out to proclaim? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus says to us today, I send you out to testify to me in word and deed. First, we testify to him with our words. Again, the message we bring is not one of blame, but one of repentance and forgiveness. And the first thing we always have to remember as we go out to proclaim the word of Christ is that our hands are not clean in this mess either. That, um, we have to remember this, that we are, we are responsible in some way. And that we cannot go through this life thinking that our sins haven't contributed to other people's problems. So we go forth first repenting ourselves before we preach repentance acknowledging our own sinfulness and turning to Jesus for mercy. And here's the great news, that for those sins, and this is what we always have to remember, that no matter who our sins are against, ultimately and finally, they are always against God. And yet God has seen fit to send His Son to die and pay for our sins so that you and I stand forgiven. And now as those who are forgiven, we are reconciled to God. And because we are reconciled to God, we no longer need to fear judgment. We know that we don't have judgment ahead of us, but hope. And it's that hope, that forgiveness, that reconciliation that we bring forth into the world to proclaim to those who do not know it, who only know the language of judgment and condemnation. We bring the message of of forgiveness and hope and healing from the cross and empty tomb of Jesus Christ. We announce to a world that we have a Christ who has ascended into heaven, and that doesn't mean he's absent and far away from us but that he is present in this word to let you know that your sins too are forgiven. And he gives you hope that is greater than the darkness you see around you. So we shine the light of our words. But now we have to understand that not only are we to preach this message, but Christ has also sent us into the world to serve the world, to serve the creation with acts of mercy and love and kindness. And we testify to Christ with our deeds as well. There's a lot of rhetoric going around right now where people are complaining, like you see these tragedies take place and everyone says, oh, our thoughts and our prayers are with you. And everybody ridicules people who says thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And and on the one hand, I want to sort of agree with those who ridicule. At the same time, we always have to remember this, that we cannot handle this evil on our own. And so prayer is the first and last place we go. We always go to prayer, trusting that God is going to take care of us and we're trusting Him to help us through this world that we can simply not do anything about. We cannot save it on our own. But we also have to remember that our prayers are to be coupled with actions. That we not only turn to God in prayer, but we go forth and and serve God's creation with our own hands. This is what I think James is getting at uh, in his book when he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works. James isn't saying something like that, like this here. What good is it before God if all you have faith, if all you have is faith and not works? Because James knows, like the rest of us, that we're right with God because of faith alone, through, by grace alone, through faith alone, all on account of Christ alone. James knows that. We all know that. At the same time, James is saying, what good is it in the world if all you do is sit around and stare up into heaven and talk about how holy and righteous you are and you don't help a single person who is hungry? What good is it for you to boast about your your knowledge of God? And what good is it for you to boast about how hard you pray when you have a sandwich and the person next to you is suffering of hunger? You have a responsibility to go out and serve. 
this attitude that says I can just boast of my own salvation without loving and serving the world is not an attitude that comes from Christ. For Christ is not the sort of God who just sits back on his hands and waits for us to figure things out. But how does our God work? He's the one who puts on our flesh and runs headlong into the hell and into the disaster and into the sin so that he might redeem us and save us. And now he calls us to join him in this work. He calls us to weep with those who weep, to stand with those who are weak, to fight for justice in our communities, to give voice to those who cannot speak, and to stand up against any injustice or system which enables or promotes evil. See, as Christians, you need to remember, you are a citizen in two kingdoms right now. One, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and you live under the gracious reign of Jesus Christ and have your salvation promised to you. And at the same time, you're a citizen of the United States of America. You are a citizen of this country. And you have responsibilities. Christ has placed you here with what we call vocations. That is, you have a responsibility as a citizen to take care of your neighbors around you, to fight for your neighbors, to protect your neighbors, to do everything within your power to make sure that your neighbors can thrive and be healthy and safe. Now, tonight, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you this means that this is how you should vote on gun law. I'm not going to tell you anything about what view you should have on gun laws. In fact, I would suggest to you tonight <laughs> that as Christians, we can all have different views on gun rights and gun laws and still be one in Christ Jesus. And we can discuss those things and debate those things, and that's a good and, and, and healthy thing. But what we cannot do is continue to abide by a system that allows our children to go to school and be shot. What we cannot do is continue to abide by systems that allow children in the womb to be killed. We cannot continue to operate in such a manner as Christians, where we think it's okay that people might go to a grocery store and be murdered for the color of their skin. These are the very things that Christ would have us stand up against and fight against. That is our responsibility as citizens and Christians in this country. Obviously, we're never going to eradicate sin and make everything perfect, but we do have these places where Christ has placed us so that we can fight for what is true and good and beautiful for the sake of our neighbor and for the sake of our children. And here's what we learn, and this becomes then the good news of the ascension, is that as we take part in this work as God's people, Christ is not distant from us, but he is present with us, in us, and among us, hiding in the words that we proclaim and using our hands as his instruments of healing and peace in this world torn apart by sin. Christ is present as he comes through the, mouths we, the words that we speak from our mouths, announcing that sin is forgiven and hope is secure in Christ Jesus. And he is present with his church as we go forth into the world, proclaiming his good news. And so the reason we stand here looking into heaven is that we are looking to Christ and trusting his promises and following him into the world, knowing the great truth that he is coming again. And when he does, he will wipe every tear from our faces and he will make all things right. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. We pray. Lord Jesus, as you know, this world is ravaged by sin. God, we want to confess to you today that by either sins of omission or commission, we have contributed to the sin around us. 
But Lord, for the sake of Your Son, have mercy on us. And we thank You that we are forgiven because His blood was shed on our behalf. But now, Lord, we pray that You would use us as Your instruments of healing and peace. Send us forth, Lord, to be Your agents of mercy in this world of sin. And come soon, we pray. Jesus, we pray this all for Your sake. Amen.